Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Daniel Strain, and I'm here with co-host B.T. Newberg. Hello. And our new co-host, Lee Anderson. Hello. Lee is our administration director and will be a co-host with us on several episodes going forward. So thank you all for being here. Uh, Thank you, B.T. and Lee. Today our topic is Serenity in Motion. Now, we all lead busy lives, and it can be very hard to find serenity or inner peace in those, the midst of those lives. We don't all get to live in a monastery, for example. So the question is, how do we find that kind of inner peace in the midst of all of the conflicts and schedules and turmoil of daily life? And what does it really mean to have inner peace, non-attachment, serenity, or, you know, other many various terms and concepts around this. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Why don't I just begin by asking you, BT, what are some of your first thoughts on this? I know you've done some prep work here. Well, yeah, serenity in motion is, it's, it almost feels like a buzzword that everybody kind of has heard, but probably are not sure you've ever really experienced it. You might associate it with the feeling of being in the zone, which is kind of partly true sometimes. Uh, And to go with that a little further, that actually underscores an important point about it, is that serenity in motion, emphasis on the in motion part. It's, It's not a passive state. It's not a state of like not caring about the outcomes of things. It's not a state of of just kind of like detaching entirely from the world and just being sort of adrift in your own world. It's like a basketball player being in the zone. Like you are in you are in the thick of it. You are doing the work that is ahead in front of you, but it flows and you feel a kind of inner peace as you said, Daniel. That's more of the experience that I think of associated with the notion of serenity and motion. So that that's the experience. How do you get to that? How do you bring that about? That's a much more complicated question, but maybe we should just start there. (laughs) It seems a little uh, different, the notion of flow or, you know, when you're you're working on something and you kind of get into that flow, as opposed to, say, someone aggravating you or being distressed about some thing that's going to be happening. So that's another part of it, too. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Lee? Well, I've gone through my whole life. I'm retired now. So I've gone through child rearing. I've gone through working, you know, full time in that environment to where I'm now in an environment where I should be able to get up in the morning and have a nice, peaceful, serene day, you know, and and everything is the way that BT was talking about, you know, getting in the zone. But what I'm finding is it's a lifelong pursuit as to how to 
incorporate that serenity into your daily life, even if you, you know, have a life that has a little less stress than normal. Uh, because, uh, like we've mentioned before, we don't live in monasteries, you know, so we've got things coming at us all day long, no matter what type of life we live. So, how do we respond that and, you know, keep that serenity in our lives? Can we even try? I mean, can we even intentionally have that experience come about? Yeah, without it being forced or right. kind of fake. And, and you certainly don't want to bottle up stress or pretend it isn't there when it really is. And right. uh, that can actually be right. very harmful. Um, at the same time, I've also seen a lot of uh, studies that have shown that this notion that we have of blowing off steam is not really accurate. That when people, yeah. they, they think if they just do a little rage, you know, kick some trash cans or something, and then they'll get it out of their system. But what you're really doing is you're practicing being an angry person, and you're getting better at it. <laughs> yeah, you cultivate that habit. Yeah, venting. It's like a matter of immediate gratification versus delayed gratification, right? You, f you feel like you feel a little better if you vent, right, to somebody. But actually, you cultivate the habit of being angry, and then it just happens more and more. And anger is itself a form of suffering. So, yeah, really, in the end, you, it's not helping you. And I remember growing up, there was a guy in town who would say just like I, he, he would he complain about things and he's, and he's like just let me get out of my get it out of my system right a as if like if you just sat there and let him have his little anger episode that 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 would be the end of it and the world would go back to butterflies and unicorns but <laughs> what I don't think that people like that realize is there are people around you that you are affecting and it's toxic for them to to take that from you and so what he seemed to see was he just saw it going out of him and then he doesn't have to think about it anymore. But the people, what he actually did was give it to the people around him and say, here, you deal with it because I don't want to. And yeah. that's not and helpful. Especially when you've got a family and you've got young kids. And so, like you said, you think you're getting rid of that. But it's really the energy that's there and how you're dealing with it. And if you're just getting rid of the stress like that and blowing off, then your kids see that and they're getting that energy out there, right. too. So um, I, I see a lot of it, you know, as how you surround yourself with that energy. So as I get older and I've got, you know, maybe a little bit less physical energy, but that does kind of help me slow down my response to things so that, you know, I, I can think about it and not respond immediately in an angry manner like that. I have noticed that as I've gotten older, you know, but, but it is, it's, it's that energy and how you take it in and then how you get rid of it. Yeah. You mentioned the family situation there. Do you, do you have kids, Lee? I have kids. They're all grown now. So now I've got young grandchildren. <laughs> so you probably have a little bit easier time with uh, getting some serenity here and there now that they've moved out. But Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's interesting to hear because, um, well, I don't have kids. Uh, but I did think, like, in prepping for this topic, I, I, I thought of the question, what is 
serenity of motion? What is non-attachment for a parent? You know, where you're so heavily mm-hmm. invested, naturally so, in in your kids and and the outcomes that you, ultimately you you can't always control. It might be frustrating if you know. It sounds like we're saying you can't vent and you can't bottle it up. Yeah. So a lot of people are then wondering, okay, right. what can you do? What works? Take it away, Daniel. Because <laughs> I know you, I know you've probably got like a ton of thoughts on this. So I want to hear it. Well, you know, eventually, of course, the M word is going to come up. Uh, we talk about meditation, and one of the things that that a lot of people maybe be misled about or misunderstand is that meditation is not escapism. Mm-hmm. It's not going off into a room to take a break from reality and just about the stress of that. But what it's more like is weight training, you know, so that you can then use those muscles when you're out in the world. So what would be an example of something you would do during meditation that then you would take out into the world and it would help you? Well, part of what you just mentioned, Lee, the slowing down in your responses. I, you know, I, I agree with you. I've noticed that um, as I get older, that's just a natural part of being, you know, I guess I want to say maturity rather than <laughs> but, uh, uh is that you, you tend to be a little slower to respond. And I don't mean that in a, like you can't respond quicker, but uh, more measured, you know, and things that happen to you, they're not as surprising or as, they don't have quite as much sting as they did when you were a teenager. So uh, that that helps a great deal, but there's techniques that go way, way further. And so in meditation, to answer your question about the example, when you start to become more conscious of what's going on in your own mind, in meditation, you're sitting with yourself and you see the things that go on in your mind, you see the things that come up in your mind, you're also practicing maintaining your attention, particularly in something like breathing meditation, you're practicing keeping your attention on something that's very, very boring. Um, Your breath is probably the most boring thing you could focus on. It's just repetitive. It's always there. But if you can do that, then you should be able to maintain attention in other places where it's likely to veer. And so that skill of maintaining your attention, you can then practice in everyday life. And you can, instead of maintaining your attention on your breath, maintain your attention on your thoughts, on what's going on inside of you. And then what happens is that little bitty juncture, um, I guess I'm switching over to stoicism now, but that little bitty juncture between the stimulus and the response where there's a judgment is often microscopic to people. They don't even notice that the judgment is happening. And so to them, it feels like there's a stimulus and the natural response was anger or the natural response was fear or worry or whatever. And they say things like, that person made me angry. So by learning to be more conscious and aware and mindful of your own inner thoughts and responses, you can already see the emotion or you can already know that the emotion is going to rise before it even does because you're looking at the response and you're thinking, I bet I know how lizard brain is going to respond to this <laughs> before it even starts to well up. And then, of course, if you keep your eye on it, that's what dissipates it. Because now you're no longer that lizard trapped in the emotion of the moment. You're the, the other being 
that's watching the lizard and you're saying what a silly little thing that that lizard is yeah that's a good point and that happens in just a fraction of a second I mean we verbalize it in a sentence like you just did lizard brain is going to do this but the actual experience of it is so much faster than that right so the way mm -hmm. I like to explain it and the way I explain it in um, the SNS course that we have available is to do with training a habit and when you're training a habit of thinking that way, being able to recognize an emotion, expected emotion, you kind of have to fail many, many times, but then keep um, using that failure to help you train the habit until you can out of just um, almost eventually it becomes trained so well that it's instinct where when the emotion or thought begins to arise, your mind just recognizes it mm -hmm. out of habit. So... There's a scientific theory of emotion called appraisal theory that basically says, uh, divides the experience down into first there's a stimulus, and then somewhere in your mostly unconscious mind, there's a judgment about it, whether it's good, bad, whatever. And then from there, the physiological response, all the things that happen in your body that we, the feeling of them that we associate with emotion, happens as a result. And the key insight there for our topic today is that that judgment that happened is what led to the emotion. And so if you can change the judgment, you can change the emotion. And you've got to practice training, seeing specific situations in a way that leads to a different kind of emotion. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. that's great. It does. I know... In a practical sense, um, I've been meditating, and I still consider myself a beginner, but probably about 10 years or so. But that instantaneous response to emotion and actually physically feeling it, a practical example is driving in traffic, you know, in road rage like mm -hmm. that, where it used to be if something happened on the road, I mean, you can physically feel your blood, you know, starting to rise and, you know, your face flushing and things like that. But when you practice meditation and after a while, you know, you start learning to recognize those emotions and things. Now, if something happens on the road, it is almost instantaneous that I recognize that emotion coming up and I can help dissipate it that way. That's you know? awesome. How many weeks, months, years, or decades would you say it took to get to that point? Well, like I said, I've been me practicing meditation for about 10 years. Um, I, would, I would say it's only been in the last three years that I can kind of control that road rage, mm -hmm. you know, get there to, to, where, to where it doesn't go anywhere. I recognize it immediately and then, you know, okay, you know, we'll just calm down here and you know, somebody else is having a bad, bad day. That shouldn't be make my day bad. Yeah. yeah. That brings up a, a great point about the second half of this, which is, you know, the, the techniques that we were just discussing about noticing and noticing the judgment is one thing. But then there's a, there's, that's where the philosophy comes in. What are the judgments and why are they incorrect as opposed to the correct judgments? And what are those and why are they the correct judgments? Mm -hmm. So then you have issues like um, the very basis of non-attachment. BT, you brought up a great uh, point about to Lee and 
the fact that if a person has children, that's automatically what most people would call an attachment. Obviously, you know, it begs the question, well, shouldn't I be attached to my children? What happens with them? What happens to them? What do you think about that whole issue of non-attachment and parenting, Lee? Well, when you are a parent, I mean, it is part of your job to help guide your children to so that they can make their own choices. And I, I think when they're really young, you have to have some kind of attachment to their actions and reactions. Um, but again, the whole attachment thing, it, I guess it's different when you're a parent as opposed to looking at something that is not going to be something that's temporary. Whereas, you you know, your children are with you permanently. They're always going to be there. You're always going to have an attachment to their outcome, you know, the things that they do, whereas getting attached to other emotions with things that are temporary, I think it is is a little bit different. I don't know if I'm explaining that right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes a big difference what we mean by non-attachment. I mean, that's a term that it's very current in the Buddhist kind of community. And I think that's probably where we're drawing it from most. But it's fraught with a lot of assumptions and things in our culture. And we can kind of easily fall down into a philosophical well if we get too defining about it. But the way I think maybe I would think about it is flexibility. Because really what can be bad about non-attachment or about attachment is if you can't deal with when things don't go your way. Right? If you're attached to the outcome of something that you can't ultimately control and it doesn't go your way, like you really want this job, doesn't work out for you, and then it's, it's a calamity for you because you're so attached to what you hoped for. But really what you need to cultivate is not so much sort of not caring about that job. You need to, be, you need to cultivate the flexibility to reach the point where you learn that, oh, it didn't go my way, and then you're like, okay, now's the point where I can let go of it. Being able to let go yeah, when I, it's appropriate, I think is probably what we're most driving at when we talk about non-attachment. Yeah, I think that very often the concept of non-attachment, is, especially in the West, is misunderstood to mean, well, anywhere really, is misunderstood to mean not caring. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, if the house burns down or whatever, I'm not attached, and, you know. And I think there's a very important distinction between committing yourself to a goal or toward an aim, and we have millions of goals and sub-goals, and they all nest out like a little branching flow chart, and, uh, and being attached to the outcome. So, you know, this the fact that we all have to operate in the world, as opposed to being in a monastery, you're dealing with a lot of goal-based behavior. Everything you do is some part of some larger scheme. <laughs> you know, if you get, get the kids to bed, it's so that they can get up in the morning, so they can have a good education, so that they can, you know, have a good life, and it all <laughs> leads up to these bigger, bigger things. If I've got to, you know, go get a tie, it's so that I don't get fired, so that I have right. money, and I can, you know. 
So all of these little goals, they're like scripts that we pick up or roles that we take on, like actors on a stage. And it's so funny how quickly we can fall into and out of those performances. A person who is just going crazy with all kinds of agendas and things at their job, and then they get laid off, and all of that suddenly means nothing. (laughs) And now they go get a job somewhere else, and now all of a sudden they've got a whole new batch of goals. And so people can slip into and out of these goals at different times, but I think committing yourself fully to the action without worrying about or, or without having unproductive worry about the outcome is is part of the technique is part of the key to the the technique we're talking about here. Yeah, so you want to be able to do your utmost to achieve what you know the goal that you have. Um, let's say again, a basketball player. You want to get the ball in the basket. Okay, you're not <laughs> going to try it any less hard to do it. And if you are trying less hard to do it, then you're not as good of a basketball player. But yeah, you don't want to uh, sort of jinx yourself or get in your own way by that unproductive worry by being so attached to the possibility of failing to make that basket that you end up hurting yourself in the end, or even if you don't hinder your ability to make your point that if you lose the game or, or if you don't get the ball in the basket, that then you get down on yourself and hinder yourself that way after the game. Um, using that analogy, I think what you want to do is you want to be able to just go straight through your, your, your plays and, and get the job done. And to me, that's what serenity emotion is about. Yeah, as a parent, you know, I think the big goal is to develop self-sufficient human beings with, you know, moral character. Now, along the way to doing that, there's a lot of little bitty goals, like you said, getting them to bed, getting them up to go to school, you know, in the morning and everything. And, And that's where you want to not get attached to the little goals. But but you've got the big goal in mind, you know, somewhere down the road. I want to make sure, you know, that these human beings are self-sufficient. You know, that's my job and have good moral character, too. Now, if there's a little uh, arguments or, uh, you know, tug of war along the way, so be it. You don't get attached to the outcome of that. Right. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Stoics would point out that uh, all of our goals are like this in a way, though. Of course, none of us are permanent, and anything can happen at any time. Uh, Many parents, they do the best job they can, and they haven't really made any mistakes per se, but sometimes a child will turn out to be, you know, less than an ideal person, and parents have to have a way of coming to terms with that, or with the loss of a child even. So even there, you've got a situation where you do the part that you do because it's all about, you know, it's just like when we were talking earlier about the person who blows off steam and they're, they're basically, they're cultivating habits within themselves. So they're turning themselves into a certain kind of person with every action, every choice they make. So when we make our choices to commit ourselves to good causes or good goals, we're making ourselves into a kind of person that does that with every choice that we make. And that's really what 
the kind of cultivation activity of a spiritual practice is about, even if the the actual activity of the goal of the action doesn't lead to you know completion of the goal, um, because there's so many other things that are involved there. Like say that you have uh, you know a lot of times people think that uh, when you talk about acceptance or equanimity that this is somehow opposed to social action. Is a well, you can't just accept this, you know, injustice that's happening. You have to get out there and fight it. And they they often think that anger is like the fuel to fight it. And uh, I would say that you don't need the distress, uh, but you can allow yourself to recognize that it's an injustice and then act vigorously to fight that injustice, whatever you need to do in terms of, uh, you know, your social activity and social action. But you can do all of that without the internal distress. And I think that's the misjudgment that we often make, is that some part of us is thinking internal distress is necessary for me to complete these goals. I think what you're saying is that you should come to those types of activities from a viewpoint of compassion rather than anger. Right. Mm, yeah. 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 Also, I think you can do a little bit of um, using role models to kind of see that in action and see what the best way to be is. Because I totally agree. A lot of people think like you need to be angry in order to effectively, you know, fight um, racism or sexism or ageism or homophobia or whatever it is. Or you didn't mm-hmm. you, you you didn't get your refund that you know. Starbucks this morning. <laughs> but 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 no, if you look at people who are actually effective at what they do, okay, you can think of uh, a really good parent, you can think of a police officer, you can think of uh, a good political leader, whatever it is. When you when you watch somebody act and deal with a very stress, stressful situation and they know what they're doing, they're not angry, they're calm. They know the way to get it done. They've done it many times before, and they don't feel the need that, oh, uh, I need to work myself up about this. No, because actually that clouds your judgment, and it Mm -hmm. causes you to distort reality and end up doing a much poorer job than you otherwise would be. The goal, I think, is to be able to see with unclouded eyes the thing you must do, which is in front of you. Yeah, and a lot of people that go about their goals, whether it's uh, their political actions or their social interactions or their personal goals, a lot of people that go about that in that very emotionally charged way, they end up burning themselves out. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. They'll fight for a cause for a year or two, and then they can't take it anymore, and they get distressed or they get distraught or feelings of hopelessness set in and all that kind of stuff. And then they end up falling out of the movement. And I think that brings it back to the whole energy thing where they're using the wrong kind of energy. They're using, they're expending so much energy that they deplete themselves. Whereas when you come from a basis of, stopping to thinking about it, calming yourself, you know, and then again, coming from it, a perspective of compassion for the problem, you're not expending that energy there. So you can stay at it longer. Yeah. 
It can yeah. even be rejuvenating. Um, right, right. Yeah. So if if a person listening to this is nodding and nodding and nodding, but saying, yeah, but how do I start? Like, what wh what's step one? I mean, to me, it seems like to, to really be able to do this effectively in life, you it just takes so many, uh, such a long accumulation of experiences and self-awareness and, and um, kind of wisdom that comes with years. Um, but how do you get the ball rolling? I think that to answer that, we can go back to what Daniel was saying with meditation, where what you need to do is just be able to recognize when you're getting away from the calm ideal that we're talking about, the, the early warning signs that something like that you're starting to get worked up. And some of the best ways to do that is just to, to, to be able to recognize the physical, the physiological changes that happen when an emotion starts to grasp you. Um, mm -hmm. So that might be a sense of tension. It might be a tightness in the chest. I can kind of uh, feel it almost in my nose in a weird way that I can't quite describe. Um, it was really apparent to me when I was um, still new at my job that I have at my part-time job at a big box department store. It was like around Black Friday time and it's just constantly being mm. pulled in every direction. You're just like, oh, oh, got to get this done and help this guest and help that guest. And and I just, every time that happened, I just tried to recognize them and just say, it'll be okay. And just, just, just don't, I do better if I'm calm. So just don't go there. Right. And just, you just keep doing that. Mm -hmm. You keep doing that and you keep doing that. And eventually you train that habit. And then eventually your mind just, as soon as some situation triggers that, it, your mind is already saying it, just be calm. And then yeah. the emotion never goes in that direction in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, so much of this is about the stories we tell ourselves, the little narratives that we run through our head. Why did that person have to be this way? They insulted me and yes. I don't deserve this and all these little uh, narratives that we attach to everything. And so sometimes if you just, you know, and, and there's another aspect to this. It's not just the anger and the, the stress and all that, but also the forward looking stuff like the worry and the fear about something that's going to happen. So meditation can help us recenter, just bring everything down, calm our mind, turn everything off for a minute, recenter, and have that, be able to still your mind on demand or as you need to, uh, really helps clear out a lot of those narratives. And by doing that, I think, uh, just like you said, BT, you build a, you build a habit yeah, I think I think that's definitely a good place to start. Sometimes you can meet people who never meditated, they never read uh, anything about Buddhism or Stoicism or uh, psychology or anything like that, and they've got great wisdom to share and they've got great techniques and they've learned it through their years and through their natural inclinations and their just their personality type veered toward those kinds of things. But these kinds of teachings and techniques definitely provide a boost. You know, it's kind of like uh, artistic ability. There's different people who have different levels of kind of just natural inclination toward it, but everybody can benefit from an art lesson. You can get better than what you are uh, no matter what, where you're at. And there's always one of the things I like about Buddhism is its focus on impermanence also means that everything is ever-changing. There's nothing that's set in stone. 
and who we are as people is pretty much boundless. We can change. There's always an ability to uh, reinvent ourselves through work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So I think we're at the end of our time. Any last uh, thoughts on, on the topic before we close out? No, I think it's just what we've been saying. It, it's it's a lifelong pursuit of having the habit, you know, of how you respond to different things. But you're never going to get it all perfectly. You're always going to have to react and you get to choose how you react. Yeah, the tolerance and ability to forgive yourself and be patient with yourself and be tolerant of yourself is yes. definitely a, a necessary uh, thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. The only other thing I would add is that during the month of May, we are holding a session of the course, uh, Introduction to Spiritual Naturalism. So I'm not sure exactly what date this podcast will air, uh, but uh, definitely check that out. It's on our month website. May. Yes. Uh, we got the courses, we got podcasts, we got articles, we got all kinds of fun stuff at our website. So uh, please check us out if you haven't heard of us before, the Spiritual Naturalist Society. We'd love to have you be a part of our community. And uh, thank you, BT and Lee, for joining me. And thank all of you out there for listening. Yeah, have a great you. week. All right. Thank you. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and join our community at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. J.N. Forrest is our technical director, and Daniel Strain is program director. Our hosts are Daniel, J., and B.T. Newberg. Please share our program with others and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today. Spiritual Naturalism Today.